This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is number 14 and the last of the series of studies in the book of the Revelation. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, we shall be reading together two psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 72. It may not be quite true to say that every psalm is prophetic, but there are very few psalms that have not got the future embedded in them, in the experiences of those who wrote them at the beginning. And it's very obvious in Psalm 2 that we have the precincts, as it were, of the millennial kingdom. For there we have the statement, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, which is repeated in the book of the Revelation. And you will see that there is a rebellion by kings and rulers against not only the Lord's anointed, but they cast away his cords from them. They will not be bound. There's that anarchy that's rampant. There's so much in these psalms, if you ponder them, that will give you the atmosphere in which the book of the Revelation seems to be written. I would like to draw attention, just in passing, the word anointed in verse 2 is the usual word which gives us the English translation, the Messiah. But in verse 6, if you've got a margin in your Bible, you will see that the word set, I have set my king, that also is given as the word anointed. Uh, I'm not trained with words, but this is exactly what the relationship of these two words are that are both translated anointed. The first one means just to be anointed with oil. And if that's all it means, you say, well, why? No, it must have a significance, mustn't it? The anointed person was an appointed person. And that's the whole secret of the word. And the anointed person in the Bible was prophet, priest, and king. And against that one, that anointed one, that had been appointed to rule in Zion, this rebellion was raised. When we come to Psalm 72, we have the title written over it, It's a Prayer for Solomon. Sometimes we are apt to forget that not one single person in the scriptures usually can be lifted out as a type of Christ. So many times it has to be more than one person or more than one thing because of the many facets of his person and witness. David is a wonderful type of Christ as king. But David was a man of war. Solomon is a wonderful type of Christ. But Solomon went very seriously astray. But so did David. They're types and shadows. But the two together give you two aspects of the kingdom. The first, where there is a, a need for a warrior king, and that's how the Lord appears in the book of the Revelation, he comes to make war. And then we have the Prince of Peace, Solomon, in whose days there was peace and prosperity, in a sense that never has been, or has been, since been repeated in the experience of the people of Israel. One or two little statements in Psalm 72 seem to call for a, a word, although some of you may already know, that is in verse 6, I've heard people, he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass. And it's no disrespect to my dear old mother, because if she were out in the country, and the rain came down on the hay, she said, you know, doesn't it smell nice? 
But if you went to the farmer and said, Ooh, that's lovely to have a pelting rain on your hay, it says so in the Psalms. Well, he'd say the Psalms don't know what they're talking about. This word doesn't mean the grass that's there. It is the word translated the king's mowings in the book of Amos. I think I've got a note here somewhere to that effect. And um, also in 2 Samuel 23.4. It's the ground that has been mown and left just hard, spiky sort of uh, pieces of grass that crackle under your foot in the heat, heat of the sun in Palestine. Oh, when a miracle takes place, when the first rain comes, before you can believe your eyes, it's all them all green. That's what it'll be like when he comes. He shall come down on the mowings that are all dead and dried. And the wilderness shall blossom as a rose. That's one of the thoughts. And then at the, you'll find more than once in this psalm, all nations are mentioned. And you remember in the great prophecy, Matthew 24 and other passages, it speaks about all nations, all nations, all nations. They must be kept as they're written. This is not merely preaching the gospel to an individual sinner. This is something which has to do with all nations that are to be gathered, all nations that are to be judged, all nations that are to be blessed. But then, at the finish, he says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. It doesn't mean that David never prayed anymore, but he'd reached the zenith. He'd reached the goal. He had nothing more in front of him. And I would like you to turn to the passage I partly referred to, 2 Samuel 23.5, just to see how he speaks of it in that passage. 2 Samuel 23, verses 4 and 5. It speaks about the ruler in verse 6. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by the clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Now you'll find there's another rendering to those words, although he make it not to grow, and it stands something like this. At the beginning, David's house, for is not my house thus through God? At the end, for shall he not cause it to prosper, is the alternative rending. And in the middle, two statements. This covenant is sure, and this is all my desire. There is David lining himself up with God's purpose. God's purpose, his house, that kingdom, of which his was only a type of the shadow. He realised that there was a king to come that would eclipse anything that he had ever done. But he was right to look at his son Solomon and see in him a type of what the Prince of Peace would be in the fullness of time. Well, now we must turn our attention. This time, instead of going into the book of the Revelation, I'm wanting to deal with Old Testament types. One of the reasons why I'm bringing the book of the Revelation to a conclusion, I think is a very wholesome one, for I don't know any more to tell you. I dare say I could occupy this pulpit for an hour telling you nothing, but that's not what I'm here for. And I have a feeling that if a person says he doesn't know, when he doesn't know, he's more likely to be believed when he says he does. 
And if there's anybody else who knows all the answers to the problems that are there in Revelation 20, 21 and 22, I should be very glad to change places with you. On another reason is this, that I feel we must keep a balance in this chapel. To keep on and on and on with Antichrist and Daniel and the man of sin and all these things would be at long last to put our truth out of perspective. For those of us who belong to this ministry, we are sure that we belong to the church of the body of Christ and under the terms of the mystery. And although all scripture is our province, yet it would be unwise to be so steeped in prophecy that belongs to another people as not to give enough attention to our own calling. So when we meet together in this chapel next time, we shall be going back to our own epistles and considering largely the practical outworking of truth that we find embedded in that epistle to the Ephesians. We, this evening, are going to look at just a few statements made with regard to three kingdoms that come in the Old Testament. The kingdom of Saul, the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon. And the first thing we have to remember is there never ought to have been a kingdom on earth at all so far as Israel were concerned. For the very fact that Saul was asked for, God says they rejected me. But of course, he overrules the strange activities of the human mind and it's now embedded in scripture. That which we see given in prophecy that before the true kingdom is set up, there's going to be a false one. There will be a pre-millennial kingdom. Now some of you who hear me say that mustn't run away and say that I've endorsed what is now called the pre-millennial kingdom teaching because that teaches that there's going to be a real sort of millennium to last about 500 years on the earth uh, which I can find no warrant in scripture. But when I look at the book of the Revelation I find that before the king comes there is to be a universal kingdom it's going to be the kingdom of the beast, the anti-Christian monster at the time of the end. And Saul comes before David. And David comes before Solomon. And those three phases of the kingdom are there in the book of the Revelation. We have, first of all, the 13th chapter where we have the anti-Christian kingdom. We have the 20th chapter where we have the millennial kingdom. But it's a rod of iron kingdom and there's a rebellion at the end. And then we have after that the day of God, which is so often forgotten, which takes you right on to the end when the perfect kingdom is laid at the feet of the Father that God may be all in all. So although I said to you just now, I'm finishing the book of the Revelation because I don't know any more about it, I do see moderately clearly that those three kingdoms are there in that book, 13, 20, and 21 and 22. So shall we use the time we have at our disposal in acquainting ourselves with some of the terms that are used for these three kingdoms. They will help us, I think, to get a little picture and, uh, as it were, round off our studies and bring them to a fitting conclusion. We're returning to the Old Testament, the first book of Samuel, and in the eighth chapter we have um, the origin of the kingdom under Saul. I think we'll start reading together 1 Samuel the 8th chapter. And it came to pass when Samuel was old 
And he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Adlar, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after Luca, and took bribes and perverted judgment. Dreadful to think, isn't it, that a man like Samuel should have sons that could be described like that. A man like Eli had sons that were an abomination. And Samuel was called as a child. And now Samuel has to have the same bitter experience. How true it is that grace doesn't run in the blood. Grace doesn't run in families. It's no excuse, of course, but here it is. With all his knowledge of the word and will of God, his sons departed seriously, so seriously that they were practically responsible for the cry of Israel, give us a king. So we'll read on. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us. Now the sting is in the tail of this statement. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. There is a stock question which you'll find embedded in the Talmudic writings that any new teacher that stands up is very often given a question. What do you say is the first and greatest commandment of the law? You know, they put it to Christ. He was there posing as a teacher, so they said to him, you answer that question. But it was put to other rabbis. And it's on record that one rabbi said, most certainly, the greatest commandment of the law of Moses was wearing a fringe round the bottom of your garment. Now, that could raise a smile in a Gentile Oh, can the Gentile mind smile? I don't know, I was going to say so. Anyhow, just reserve the smile for a moment. What did that man mean? Did he mean anything sensible or what? Why should he put the fringes round the bottom of a garment as being so important? Because God said you must never omit that woman that blue, you must never omit that fringe, because that is a sign that I'm giving you that you are separate people from all nations of the earth. That's what he said. And these people were bartering that. Even Balaam, who was actuated by so much greed, nevertheless prophesied truth, he said, the people shall dwell alone, they should not be numbered among the nations. And here this people, whose destiny was to be a separate people, they're just saying, make us like the nations. What fools we can be, can't we, when we somehow transgress or in any measure seek to modify the will of God. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord, and the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. Why? What a dreadful thing for God to say, all right, let them, let them go. Let them ask. For he says, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So here we have a theocracy with God as their king, with no visible king on a throne. That's what he intended. But they said, make us like the nations. Isn't it a tragedy to get some prayers answered, friends? Do you remember in the scriptures, in the record of Israel in the wilderness? He answered their prayer and sent leanness into their soul. And some prayers in the scriptures you can see had Awful consequences because they were not asked according to the will of God. So it goes on here. 
Samuel says, now, listen. Verse 9. Hearken unto, my, unto their voice. How be it yet protest solemnly unto them? Don't let them go without a witness. God's willing that they should repent, even now. And show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Tell them what they're asking for. Tell them what they're in for. So Samuel did. And he said, this will be the manner of the king, verse 11. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands, and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war, and instruments of chariots. Here it comes. Here's this despotic rule. Here's this having to be conscripted even for farm work. I suppose you know what to ear the ground is. That's the word, old English word to plough. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your army yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed. This is beginning to usurp what belongs to God. The tenth, the tithe, belong to him. And your vineyards. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. And so it goes on. In verse 18, ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye have chosen you and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, Nay, but we will have a king over us. So, Samuel was told in the last verse of this chapter to hearken to their voice and make him a king. Now, here's the king in the next chapter, the ninth chapter. Now, there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a mighty man of power, when you get a long string of names in the Bible, that generally means he's a man of importance. Look at this. And his name was Saul. And you remember there was another one named Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin in the New Testament. So he was linked, you see, with that tribe and with that name. And he had a son whose name was Saul. A choice young man and goodly. A choice young man and goodly. They're going to find the same expression used of David presently. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. So, from the physical point of view, he was a king of men. And so the story goes on, as you know, how he was chosen and anointed. The Spirit of God came upon him, he prophesied, and then came the rebellion the disobedience, the growing darkness, the all the satanic element that enters in to the end of Saul, how he turned unto witchcraft, how he died a suicide's death because he had left the Lord, that was the king of man's choice. Well now we turn to have a look. I've only got three statements there in this Saul, man's day. They rejected the Lord he was goodly, and in the 16th chapter, the spirit is associated with him. It says in the 16th chapter, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, 
seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. So Saul's now rejected by the Lord. They had rejected the Lord in choosing him, now it comes back upon them. Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided thee a king among his sons. And so we find the story goes on in this same chapter that Samuel, he went to this Bethlehem and he inquired of Jesse and uh, told him the reason. Look at verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. You see, God doesn't veil the fact that some of his servants can be utter fools. Even Samuel ought to have known better than to look at this man and say, Oh, what a strapping fellow he is. Well, what a strapping fellow Saul was. God looks not upon the outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. But he said, Eliab, oh, he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Man looketh upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now there are many things that we have to be sad about when we read the story of David. And they're not shielded, they're not covered up, they're exposed. But God said he knew the heart of David in spite of his lapses and his failures. And so it says here, Jesse called Abinadab. Neither was this one. Well, he said here, there's the seven of them. He made seven of his sons to pass. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen thee. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are there, are here all of thy children? Oh, he said, there remaineth yet the youngest. That's what God does, you see. He picks up those who are of no account. And he passes by those who would be chosen by men. I'm very comforted about that myself. And so should, you should be too. For we are numbered among those who are not very, not very, many of us mighty, not many noble, as the epistle to the Corinthians said. And uh, there remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. Oh, if I'd only known. He says, that's the point. That's the point. I'm making him my shepherd king. I took you from the sheepfolds, and I put you over my people of Israel. The shepherd king. And shall we ever lose the thrill and the joy of reading the words of the shepherd king? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want and so on. Here he is, the shepherd king. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly. So you see, there's no premium put on being ugly. God didn't say, Now find me the ugliest person. I've had enough of a goodly looking one. No, this one was goodly. It depends on whether the outside is corresponding with the inside. That's the thing that matters. And if the outside doesn't always correspond, well, we put up with it, you see. And there's a suggestion here that David was of that type of Israel, which you don't see many times now, but which have always been known. A ruddy complexion, a rather auburn or fair hair, and even blue eyes. 
Now I owe a little bit to Elijah Bendor Samuel, as a young man, because he introduced me to the wonder of Hebrew word study. And he had fair, curly hair, a pink complexion, and blue eyes, and he was a genuine Israelite through and through. And some of this swarthy type of Jew that you see is rather a mongrel variety and not the genuine thing. And you do also know, although we don't put any uh, anything on it, that many of the traditional pictures of our Saviour represent not a black-haired Jew, but a fair, auburn-haired, ruddy-complexioned Jew. And there's a very great possibility that is retaining a truth. So what's it matter? Whether your eyes are blue or whether they're any other colour, it depends on the heart. And here was this David, a man after God's own heart, as God said. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. So here we have the transfer. The anointing was accompanied by the actual uh, clothing by the Spirit. And here was this young David, the Lord's anointed, although he for a period of time he had to wait. Well, we'll leave Saul and go on with David. In the second Samuel, chapter 5, we reach a point in the history which is important for us to remember. 2 Samuel, chapter 5, You must remember that David ruled over his own particular tribe and people for a period and then ultimately reigned over all Israel. And there's a feature there that we want to keep in mind with regard to the type. David, not having all Israel at the very beginning. Solomon had all Israel all the time. Let's look at this fifth chapter. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron. Hebron is a word that means, among other things, fellowship. And spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. I'm going to stop for a moment to speak about something which has nothing to do with this passage. But you remember when our Saviour appeared after his resurrection? He said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful doctrine built upon the fact that he said flesh and bone and he hadn't got any blood. Well, to me, that's blasphemous nonsense. Because if you hadn't got blood, you wouldn't want to have oxygen. And if you didn't have oxygen, you wouldn't want to have nostrils. And you wouldn't have a human being at all. We are so, we are so used to saying flesh and blood, flesh and blood, flesh and blood. But the Old Testament doesn't say flesh and blood, it says flesh and bone. Even Adam, at the beginning, used the same figure. He looked at his wife Eve and he says, This is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. I began to say, he said, mm, Eve, you look a bit anemic. Nothing to do with it, you see. So let's watch these figures of speech. They said, We are thy bone and thy flesh. And you can understand what they meant. Also in time past when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and brought this in Israel. And the Lord said unto me, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, 
and shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron. And King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So he was a second anointing. This time all Israel now together. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Can you listen to the same words in Luke's Gospel? Almost the same words. When Jesus was about 30 years of age, there he was, anointed for his work. And he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 30 and 3 years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, and so he goes on and speaks about taking the Zion. Now let's go on, because this is a, a, the next step in the victory. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same is the city of David. Uh, if you want to go into that passage and understand what that jibe about the blind and the lame, you'll discover in the record that Zion was the fortified section of Jerusalem and David was conscious that if he allowed the Jebusite to still remain in the fortified section of Jerusalem, then his sovereignty would be in question. But they so felt so secure in their fortified city that they put all the cripples up along the wall and said, they're good enough to keep David out. Then you may remember that Joab, he discovered the way up a shaft that supplied the inner part of the castle with water. You, I suppose you've been to castles in England and elsewhere. Carrie's book particularly is a good illustration. Right in the middle of the castle is a well. And if you haven't gone it, you might as well capitulate because you could be easily starved out. So they got right in the castle, a well. And Joab found a way up the shaft. And before they knew where they were, Zion was taken. Well, that's just another feature. This is the overcoming element associated with Zion that you'll discover if you trace the use of the word elsewhere. Well, now we come to the to the uh, final statement in connection with David that we want to look at, that's 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes, the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by course, the captains over the thousands, the captains over the hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king and of his sons, with the officers and with the mighty men, with all the valiant men out of Jerusalem. Then David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had in mine heart to build an house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And had made ready for the building. And God said unto me, Thou shalt not build a house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and a shed blood. Albeit the Lord God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he hath chosen Judah to be the ruler, and of the house of Judah the house of my father, 
and among the sons of my father he liked me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons, he hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said unto thee, Solomon, thy son, he shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. And so it goes on. So David was a man of war all his days. And Solomon was the king of peace practically all his days. And so we have the two. It's good to see how God said to David, and he might say to us, it was good for you, David, to have thoughts about my house. That's right, but you mustn't do it. And sometimes we entertain thoughts that we feel we ought to do. But he says, oh no, somebody else will. So it's good to know that God judges the intents of our heart as well as the very things we've done. Well, I think we must turn, because we want to give the other side of the story a consideration, we must turn to the Solomon. The day of the Lord is the millennial kingdom. He comes to make war, he rules with a rod of iron, he has to repress a rebellion at the end. The day of God finds Christ as universal ruler, and he rules and reigns until all enemies are under his feet. He's there acknowledged as King of kings and Lord of lords, and the purpose is then completed. I said King of kings. 1 Kings, chapter 4. We go back on our story a little bit now. First of Kings, chapter 4. See how far Solomon accords with this future, this prophetic t- teaching concerning Christ. 1 Kings 4, uh, 20. Judah and Israel were many, as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. There have been those who, because of their interpretation, set aside in the book of the Revelation, chapter, uh, chapter 20, the sand, and say so it doesn't mean a great number. Well, here it does. And that's the usual way in which it's used, a great number. The sand of the sea. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms <coughs> from the river unto the land of the Philistines unto the border of Egypt. He reigned over all kings. Well, that's king of kings. So far as it's humanly possible for a man to have that title. And then they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. And then we have the description of some of the extent of his kingdom. It says in verse 24, For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tisar even to Azar, over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. So he was king of kings, and he had a dominion that was extensive. It says so here, uh, faster and wider than had ever been uh, occupied before, and perhaps since, but it's been very much diminished, do you remember? And it says in verse 25, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Now those words would conjure up in the mind of the Hebrew reader the Feast of Tabernacles, 
which is the last feast in Israel's festival year. And every man dwells under his own vine and under his own fig tree, no one making him afraid. No more need for walled cities. And it's even even continued in this very city of London. You can find where there are Jews living together who are at all concerned about their faith, that when the, the time comes for the Feast of Tabernacles, out in their little back garden with a tiny little erection over their head and the Gentile neighbours wondering what on earth happened to them, they're sitting under a bower of green stuff. They know what they need, even though they may not be able to fully express it. A day will come when the greater than Solomon will give them peace and safety, the very words that are going to be used by the Antichrist first and be disowned by him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And that is more or less an extension of the words in Psalm 72, he should have dominion from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth, or ends of the land, as it might be. And in Psalm 2, Ask of me, I will give thee the heathen thine inheritance and the uttermost parts thy possession. So here we've got the extension of the kingdom unto Solomon, which is an anticipation of that greater ruler that's yet to come. In 1 Chronicles chapter 1 verse 9 uh, I hope I've got this right. I may not. If not, I shall pass on and leave it. No, just look, I'll make, just make sure. Uh, 2 Chronicles, chapter 1, verse 9. It says in verse 7, In that night did God appear unto Solomon, said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. That's a very favourite thing in these fairy tales we had when we were children, wasn't it? Three wishes. And how many times it exposed human nature. First of all, you wish for something. Then it was such an intolerable burden that you had to use your last wish to get rid of it. Well, in this case, Solomon manifested a right spirit. He said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and has made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. For thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Here again is a fulfilment of Old Testament prophet, promise and prophecy. This was no little tiny kingdom that could be just neglected. Here were kings that were ruled over and they were like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this thy people that is so great. And that pleased God as you could understand. And God said to Solomon because this was in thine heart and thou hast not asked riches, wealth or honour nor the life of thine enemies neither yet hast thou asked for long life but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honour such as none of the kings have had. 
that there have been before thee, neither shall there be any after thee that have the like. That's the way that God acts. The same spirit is in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you. Not necessarily always, but God will not reserve and hold those back if you put first things first. And we must give credit to Solomon that in his younger days he did. Tragedy of Solomon is that he couldn't resist certain attractions. If you read the book of Proverbs, you'll discover, and if you don't know how to get the subdivisions, you'll find them indicated in the companion Bible, that they were not all written by Solomon. You will find that it says this, this particular proverb was written by Solomon, and this particular proverb was written for Solomon. And the wonder is, the tragedy is, that in all the books of the Proverbs that were written for young Solomon's guidance, he was warned about his affections in a certain direction. And in all the Proverbs that he wrote himself, he said everything else that everybody said, and he never said a single word about his great weakness. Nehemiah said, even Solomon was led away by these outlandish women. You see, the wise, the wisest king that this world has ever known was an utter fool, wasn't he? When he didn't allow the word of God to be his director. Do you know if you read the last chapter of the book of Proverbs, you have God's pen picture of the sort of woman he ought to have married? If you've never read that chapter in view, read it again. And it would, wouldn't be a bad description for anybody to have a look at before he went to that extreme, extreme experiment of taking unto himself a wife. Of course, there ought to be another chapter written, I suppose, so that the lady could have a full sketch of what sort of husband. And there it was. He got it in chapter and verse in front of him. And all his wisdom didn't save him from making a fool of himself. And I say that to you and to myself, that we may know the word of God by heart. We may be a walking concordance. But if it doesn't influence our life, then we can make havoc of our lives and others in the same way. There's Solomon. But that doesn't enter into the type. The type is here. Solomon in all his glory. Solomon in his wisdom. And our Saviour said, a greater than Solomon is here. You remember about himself. And then we have in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 18, these words. He's now dedicating the temple. David, you see, was not allowed to do so. David was given instructions. David gave of his own personal possessions, but no more. And he says here, verse 17, Now then, O Lord God of Israel, let thy word be verified, which thou hast spoken unto thy servant David. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. There's a consciousness of the vastness. This Solomon has gone beyond the limitations of the present heaven. He says, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, much less this house which I have built. So he realized it was only a shadow and a type. But here was a wonderful dedication, as you may see if you read the whole chapter right through. And then in the um, 
Psalms, it speaks about Sheba and Seba. Well, uh, I haven't actually got the passage on this chart, but there's very few people, when you speak about Solomon, doesn't think about the Queen of Sheba. Well, it says so in the psalm. Before ever the Queen of Sheba came on the scenes, the psalm was written. They shall bring the gold of Sheba and all these things to do with those outlying districts. And Solomon's wisdom was such that it had entered into the ears of this remote kingdom and the Queen of Sheba made that long journey and she said when she saw the wonder of Solomon's palace and all the things that he did and when she saw his wisdom her heart failed her. So we've got a picture of the way in which Solomon gives you the universal element of the reign of Christ. And then <coughs> 1 Kings chapter 4, 25, which we've looked at already, it uses the words safety, and in 1 Chronicles 22, 9, it uses the corresponding words peace. We'll just get that. Chronicles 22, verse 6. Then he called for Solomon his son, this is David, and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. Of course you can see, there is the, involved the word peace, which is expressed in the word shalom, peace. His name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his day. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. Those words are quoted in the epistle of the Hebrews as of Christ. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with thee, and prosper thou, and build the house of the Lord thy God, as he hath said unto thee. And so it goes on teaching us in this Old Testament prophetic way a little idea of the three kingdoms that we see set out in other terms in the book of the Revelation. Saul, the people's choice. Saul, not a forbidding person, a goodly person. And the indication in the prophet Daniel and in the book of the Revelation is that when the man of sin, the son of perdition, ascends the throne, he will be accepted by people. He says that he comes in peaceably with flatteries. And only when the moment comes to suit his purpose does he reveal himself in his true colour. And Israel lost because they said, we want to be like the nations. Then we have the coming of Christ in Revelation 19, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, sharp sword went out of his mouth, he came to make war, to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Then we have the end of the millennium. 
And we leave the day of the Lord for the day of God. And there in the day of God, as far as we see, there was no allocation of rule to anybody. In the millennial kingdom, the twelve apostles sat upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, but not so in the days that follow. The heavenly Jerusalem rules over the earth, but not so in the days that follow. He shall put down all rule and all authority, whether it's good or bad. And he alone, he alone, brings ultimately the purpose of God to its glorious zenith and lays it at the feet of the Father that God may be all in all. I hope that I haven't disappointed you because we haven't been able to do very much with regard to our subject this evening except turn to a few outstanding passages to give a little indication of the way in which these three kingdoms are indicated in prophecy and seem to find their goal in the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation. Nevertheless, this is a part of all scripture which is profitable and I trust that when we go through these studies, as I hope you will, more than once, uh, they will form a fitting climax as we bring this study of the book of Daniel and the book of the Revelation and the second coming of Christ of which this forms a part to its present conclusion. I don't say we shall never go back to the book of the Revelation again in these studies because who knows, I might suddenly see something more in it, mightn't I, which will be worth passing on. That is happening, of course, all the time. But as I said earlier, I feel that we've given sufficient time now over these many months to the things that belong to the calling of others as to demand that the balance should be reinstated and we come back when we meet together next time with the epistle to the Ephesians and its practical outworking of truth before us. And I trust that just as we may have been gripped and held by some of the wonders that are yet to come upon the earth, we'll be equally ready to consider what God expects of us who boast that we belong to the body of Christ and are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And so we say goodbye to one another with regard to this prophetic study and we hope that we may join one another next time with, when we deal not with the day of the Lord and not with the day of God but with regard to the dispensation of the mystery, its high calling and its corresponding worthy walk.